Dr. William Hartman, astronomer, planetary scientist, and painter, is someone we've been wanting to bring to you, the KDVS audience, for some time. He is winner of the Carl Sagan Medal of the American Astronomic Society, given for public communication of planetary science. In fact, he was the very first person so honored in 1997. Dr. Hartman authored the only atlas this correspondent has ever read, which was a page-turner. That was A Traveler's Guide to Mars, a volume which made the Red Planet a vivid and exciting place and one we can't recommend highly enough. I had the pleasure of reading it in January of last year while traveling to Pasadena for an event put on by the Planetary Society, which monitored the nail-biting landing of the first of twin rovers which put down on the Martian surface. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Hartman at that event, which got to celebrate the successful deployment of the Spirit Lander to a bouncy landing inside a large Martian crater. We hope to talk about that book, too, but Dr. Hartman comes to us today courtesy of Newman Communications, which is helping promote another book blending science and graphic artistry, The Grand Tour, A Traveler's Guide to the Solar System. It should be noted that I was familiar with the book before I got a 2005 edition because I owned both the 1981 and 1993 editions which preceded it. I can tell you that those were great books, but this latest edition is even better as it takes advantage of the many space probes and ground-based observations to provide the reader with exactly what the title advertises. A Traveler's Guide to 54 Unique Worlds Which Orbit the Star Which We Call Our Sun. We are keen to discuss this blend of art and science with their author. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. William K. Hartman. Thanks very much. Dr. Hartman, you're a painter, a geologist, and an astronomer, and I wanted to start with a very basic question on planetary color. As Mars comes uh, almost as close this year as it did in 2003, and closer than it will for thousands of years, why does the red planet look so darn yellow? Well, the color is... Uh uh, the basic reddish color, yellowish, reddish, orangish color, is from minerals in the raw iron minerals that have been rusted. It's the same problem. You leave your tools out in the yard, the iron rusts, and you get that reddish color. Now, on Mars, there's a variety of shades, and uh, the finer dust particles on Mars, uh, which are more weathered, tend to have a little yellower color. and Telescope observers have seen for a long time that when you get a big dust storm on Mars, when that dust blows up into the air, that looks yellower. So it may be when you see it yellower, it may be telling you there's a lot of dust in the atmosphere or maybe even one of the big global dust storms happening. Well, I was looking at it last night, and I was even comparing it with someone. I said, is that red or does that look yellow to you? And she said, it looks pretty yellow to me. So, Well, I often think it's a little oranger than, than the pictures that we actually see from the surface. It looks like the rocks themselves are more of a kind of a brick red and brown, and some of them are even gray where they haven't been weathered yet. Uh, so I think it probably depends on varying amounts of dust in the air and so on. And even here, you know, you get a good dust storm going and, and the sky starts to look sort of brown or tan or yellowish tan or something like that instead of blue, and it's the same, same idea on Mars. Well, there was some controversy over the issue of how they calibrated the, the colors with some of the, the, the probes saying that, well, that the, the public expected red, so that maybe they reddened, reddened them up to fulfill expectations. Anything to that? I think they did tune it. The, the, color, the real color of the Mars sky is a very delicate, uh, it tends to be a little peachier and apricot, uh, but it can be kind of grayer on days when the air is clearer. Well, your guide to our solar system is arranged by size, largest worlds first, starting with the mighty Jupiter. You, you, you sort of avoided then the controversy of this definition of a planet, which has now been revived by the discovery of a Kuiper Belt object which is larger than Pluto. 
Can we talk about worlds versus planets and how you now have to revise the book? I think if we discovered Pluto today, I don't think we would call it a planet. The orbits of these things, uh, Pluto's orbit, for instance, crosses inside Neptune's orbit. Now, that's much more like an asteroid orbit than, than what we normally think of as a planet orbit. So I think there's a, a number of reasons why we, we would tend to shy away from calling it a planet if we had just discovered it. But the trouble is that name was assigned back in the 30s, and now it's hard to go back and people are reluctant to say, oh, well, let's change the nomenclature altogether and take this out of the textbooks as a planet. If you start looking at the solar system that way, there's about two dozen worlds that are big enough to really have their own personalities and their own environments. And uh, so that's a different conception of the solar system to realize that we have like two dozen big worlds. And if that wasn't bad enough, I noticed in your book, you, you, there was the, the new edition, you talked about uh, Chiron, something discovered, looked like an asteroid, uh, now thought to be a giant comet. So, and, and now Cassini mission scientists, I guess, are calling one of the moons of Saturn another big comet. So are, are, are definitions breaking down there, too? Uh, a little bit, yes. In fact, I was involved in that Chiron uh, issue because Chiron was a strange object when it was first discovered. It's between Uranus and Saturn, and I was on Mauna Kea Observatory with some other astronomers in a program where we were looking at some of these very distant objects in the outer solar system, and then one night we turned our telescope towards Chiron, you know, in, in all the catalogs as an asteroid, and we discovered it was twice as bright as it was supposed to be, and that was the first indication that it had sort of fired up and, and released some gas and dust and, and brightened up, and that's what a comet does. And, and what's really going on here is these are icy objects. This is the outer solar system. It's very cold, and a lot of the objects are made out of, at least partially, out of ice. So whenever they get warmed up a little bit, they start to, uh, the, the ice starts to change into gas, and it blows off a big cloud of gas and, and dust and so forth. And you mentioned a satellite of Saturn. This is a really great discovery just in the last few weeks that um, it's a satellite called Enceladus. It's only about 300 miles across, a pretty small one. But we could see on its surface that part of the surface was very old. You can tell that because it has lots of impact craters. So, you know, if you've been sitting around in the solar system for more than a billion years or so, you end up accumulating a lot of hits, mm -hmm. a lot of scars from impacts of asteroids. But the other half of Enceladus was nice, smooth, fresh ice, as if it had been resurfaced, as if something was forming new ice on the surface. And uh, they were flying past with the, the American-European Cassini mission, and a um, big cloud of water vapor coming off of Enceladus, erupting from down inside the planet through some fractures on the surface. So, so yes, it looks like uh, Enceladus is another world that has some liquid water down inside. Liquid water is always a kind of holy grail. You know, when I say liquid water for planetary scientists, you, your ears perk up because we think that life started in, in water on the Earth, in oceans on the Earth. So this whole quest for whether life started on other planets what we usually look for is, is there any sign that there was liquid water there? And now we've seen that on Mars and Enceladus and a satellite of Jupiter called Europa. So it's getting very interesting in terms of looking for life. I mentioned uh, how much I enjoyed your, your, your guide to Mars, and in reading it, you, you made an excellent case for water being everywhere on the Martian surface, and yet NASA and, and, and the latest probes, they seem very, very reluctant to go there, and they're very cautious in making these, these announcements. Uh, what, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I've been puzzled by the same thing. I mean, uh, 
Mars is definitely a frozen, dusty planet on the surface, a sort of cold desert. And what we've been discovering, we know there's ice sitting there on the polar ice caps. You can see that. And the Odyssey mission in 2001 actually detected ice in the upper few feet of soil at high latitudes. So that's a definite detection. And that we know there was water flowing on Mars in the past because it, there's dry riverbeds all over the place. Uh, what we think is that that water was pretty abundant and soaked down into the ground and froze. So we think there's lots of massive uh, underground ice, like in, say, the permafrost, the tundra in northern Canada. Uh, you know, it's that kind of environment. But I think this argument uh, uh, about whether Mars is wet or dry, what people are really talking about is there's kind of two parts to Martian history. There's the early Mars, which pretty clearly had lots of water, and then modern-day Mars, which is pretty dry. So you have some scientists saying, hey, it's a wet planet, there's lots of water, it was, there's ice under the ground. That's kind of the way I was expressing things. And then you have other scientists saying, oh, no, it's a dry planet because it's dusty on the surface, and they're talking about relative today relative to the early past. So I think some of this is a kind of a language problem. I think, you know, we mostly all agree that, that there has been water running around on Mars. And, and you know, I certainly agree that there was more in the past and it's less now. Although um, there are some strange things on Mars. There's some, you know, fresh-looking gullies. It looks like water was released. There's at least one big river riverbed there that cuts into young lavas that uh, don't have any impact craters on them to speak of. So, you know, that looks like a case where some water was probably released when the ice melted under the ground and then a lot of water came gushing out. Maybe there was a big catastrophic flood. Well, we know there was a lot of water f four billion years ago. Is it, is it a consensus, you think, at this point that most of it must still be there underground? There's no doubt been a lot of it lost to space because Mars has lost some of its atmosphere. So I, you probably can't say that all the water there, there at the beginning is still there, but uh, large amounts of water have soaked into the ground. I think we're, most people are convinced and, and are under the ground in ice, like I said, sort of like northern Canada, tundra or something. One of the, one of the lines of evidence there, it's, it's pretty clear, if you look at craters on the moon, they just throw out big... You know, there was a big explosion. It throws out uh, dust and, and dry boulders and stuff like that. You look at the same kind of craters on Mars, and what's thrown out around the rim of the crater is not this dry dust, but a sort of muddy slurry of stuff that's actually flowed. So it, it sure looks like you had an impact into material that had ice in it, and it, instead of Instead of turning into dry dust flying through the air, it was actually sort of like a muddy splotch of stuff flying through the air and, and then splats down on the surface and flows. And that's what we see around some of those craters. Yeah, your atlas is quite vivid explaining how that, uh, that the closer you get to the equator, presumably the deeper the water is, the bigger yeah. the impact has to be to get that slushy effect. Yeah, these craters are a really neat tool because they, they you know, the depth of the crater that has that kind of muddy splotch, that tells you how far down it is to the, to the ice. And it, and it actually turns out, you can look and you see, well, the smaller craters don't have it. And then once they get deeper than a certain depth, which is usually a few hundred yards, then you start to, to see this effect of the mud coming out. Your first edition of the Grand Tour back in 1981 came before we'd even gotten probes out to Uranus or Neptune or really any asteroids or comets. What has surprised you most about what we've learned in the past couple decades and, of course, forced you to change subsequent editions? Well, I think the, uh, what we saw on the moons in the outer solar system, Uranus, Neptune, uh, Saturn, 
that's that's what has really been surprising. And when I was a kid and I had my backyard telescope and it's like the 50s, uh, you you could see these little white dots, you know, that look like pinheads through the telescope. And, and that's about as much as even professional astronomers could see. And mm-hmm. so we all thought these are little dead dormant, uh, well, geologically dead ice balls, you know, they're completely frozen. Uh, we knew the temperatures were very low. Uh, so they're all going to look like our moon, and they're going to have ice on them, and that's going to be the end of the story. And what happens, we actually get out as far as Jupiter. That's five, five times our distance from the sun. And you've got active volcanoes on one of them. You've got the second one out. The first one has, the one closest to Jupiter has the active volcanoes. The next door one has... Uh, uh, floating ice on apparently an ocean of liquid water, yeah. um, and then the next one out has massive fractures and cracks, so they're all different. And then you go to Saturn, and here's this moon Titan with an atmosphere and clouds, and uh, we have Enceladus that we talked about that's blowing off water vapor. You know, they're all different, and we go all the way out to Neptune, that's the furthest planet out, that's like 40 times as far from the sun as we are, and everybody says, well, it's really cold out there, this has got to be completely frozen. And the big moon of Neptune has some kind of smoking vents. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not sure what they are. They're sort of like geysers or some kind of little volcanic vents, but you can see these big plumes of smoke rising up through the atmosphere and then shearing off and blowing sort of like jet stream winds catch the top of the column of smoke. You know, who knows what's going on there, but again, it looks like the interior of that world Triton uh, must be hot enough to sustain some kind of uh, you know, venting activity. We, we should stress to our listeners that you're not only a, a planetary scientist who's done done some great work in the past. You worked with Carl Sagan and Bruce Murray uh, imaging um, uh, Mars back in the 70s. But, of course, you know, you, you're, you're a painter. You're, you're, I guess grandfather was a painter as well. I like the idea of trying to visualize these things. And sometimes science, you know, it can become so mathematical and, and people get lost in kind of the abstract uh, theories and principles and numbers. But... I keep coming back to saying, what would it really be like? And I think when I was a kid, that's what turned me on. And I think, you know, you have to go back and think about what, what did you, what were you excited about when you were a kid? And that was, well, what, what are those places like? So having seen my grandfather paint, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe my brain's wired differently. <laughs> maybe you do inherit this kind of stuff. But somehow I was always interested in trying to make uh, images. There was a famous American painter Chesley Bonestell who was the father of this kind of thing and he had some books in the 40s that a lot of us had and it's amazing how many of the engineers that put the Apollo astronauts on the moon had that book The Conquest of Space with all these paintings by Chesley Bonestell. He was the highest paid special effects artist in Hollywood and he actually worked on Citizen Kane and some other famous movies. A lot of people don't, don't, don't know about that background but he um did these paintings, and he was the, probably the first one that really tried to do these very ultra-realistic paintings to, to show what uh, what it would be like on the planet. And I sometimes say that you know, Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have a dream, and he didn't say, I have a blueprint. He had the dream, and the artist puts that dream out there. Chesley Bonestell had that silver rocket on the moon on the front of that book. Right. And then uh, then the the next generation actually carries out the, the blueprint and, uh, and does the job. So you know, I, I hope the art can can inspire people to be interested in seeing what's out there. Yeah, I think there was an article on him in the Planetary uh, Planetary Society's journal, which was which was really it was fascinating how what what he had done. But I like I like your grand tour and in its previous editions why I had them because 
you're not limited by your ability to paint, you and Ron Miller, uh, um, by what photographs tell us. You're able to actually say, well, what if we took a look at this, an odd view of something? So you've got pictures uh, or paintings like of a view of Pluto from its moon, some looks at Saturn's rings. That's a lot of the fun is to try to figure yeah. out some new perspective or some new view that nobody thought of before and be the first one to do it. Well, if you could go to any point in the solar system to enjoy the view, what would you like to spy firsthand? Well, you got to think that all those volcanoes going off on Io would be pretty spectacular. <laughs> uh, probably a dangerous place, but, uh, you know, just to, if you say, well, if you can magically go there and see it, that would be pretty exciting. And, and I suppose for me, Mars is a place I'd, I'd really like to get to because I have studied it in a couple of the missions, and I think... I think uh, I think we can walk around. You need a spacesuit. You need a little insulation because it's cold. But you know we would recognize things and and searching for fossils on Mars. That's going to be really interesting to see whether life ever got started there in that that environment. Yeah, I know some of these pictures I've seen of, of those 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 rovers that Steve Squires has in the surface. They they just look. You feel like you're there. You're seeing dust devils off in the distance. It's just it's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, it really is uh, pretty nice stuff. And you know, there's an interesting angle for people to know about that. Our journalism today, we, we, there's, there's this feeding frenzy to get the first picture, you know, the first, everybody wants the first picture that came back, and the journalists get that, and then that's what editors put in the papers and on television. But what usually happens is two or three days later, or a week later, or a couple weeks later, that's when the camera systems are really working, or they've reduced the data, they've got all the glitches out, and, and these magnificent pictures are released. And most of the people don't see them. Now, I've been just going around giving talks and, uh, at different planetariums and museums, and I'll have 60 people in, in an audience or 80 people, and I say, how many people have seen this picture of deep impact? And it's a picture that was released about a week after the, the impact with the comet. Yeah. And I typically have maybe three out of 60 people have seen the, the really good picture. You know, what we had in our paper the next morning was this really fuzzy, sort of a fuzzy gray blob and a fuzzy bright blob. <laughs> the bright blob was the thing hitting right. the, the gray blob, and that was it. But, you know, now they have a, the pictures reduced where you can see the craters on the surface of that comet, and uh, you see the big rays of uh, jetting material coming out of that, that, you know, the bright stuff that's shooting out from the inside of the comet. And that's just one example. Uh, fortunately, we have websites, but, you know, most people don't, end up surfing and getting into those. I've, I've just been on Mars Global Surveyor mission, and the website for that mission has something like 250,000 pictures of Mars now. Um, and you can go look at a map and click on the map and pick where you want to look, and you know you can see a picture of that spot. But but you know most people are not not getting exposed to the really exciting stuff that's coming from these missions, not to mention the fact that it takes maybe three or six months to really reduce the science results. So. We always get this report on day one, you know, when the spacecraft gets there. But six months later, when they're when they when they've actually discovered something, you know, a lot of people don't hear about that. So I hope we can all go to our reporters and say, you know, or all go to our newspaper editors and say, hey, follow the science stories. The news isn't just the day that the thing gets there. The news is the story that comes out the other end six months later. Well, we should put a plug in. I know that our station general manager, Stephen Valentino, traveled down to Chabot College last year to, to see your talk on, on the surface of Mars and what we might learn from that, and he enjoyed that very much. Great, thank you. Yeah, Chabot's a great place. I just gave another talk there about two nights ago in a beautiful big observatory up on the hills over Oakland. Well, I'm sorry I missed that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the facts I found really most engaging about, uh, about your work, Dr. Hartman, was I noticed that... Um, 
you did something I thought was so ingenious. I wanted to talk about it that when they were first doing uh, a look at, at the moon in the '60s, you had the idea to project the image from the Earth onto a sphere, and we're able to deduce that there's a large bullseye-type impact basin that's barely visible from the Earth, and then subsequent uh, probes that went by the moon confirmed that that's exactly what it was. I thought that was just so ingenious. Craig, that wasn't my idea. That was my professor's. I, I, I worked on it, and, uh, and I was probably the first one or one of the first one or two or three to see that big bullseye basin, but Gerard Kuiper, the guy that the Kuiper belt named after, he was uh, the head of the uh, planetary studies here at the University of Arizona, and he had uh, got that idea. Now, somebody, I guess the very earliest version of this was there was some scientist in, I think, Europe, in Germany maybe, who had taken a small globe and coated it with photographic emulsion and projected a picture of the moon onto it and then developed it. Wow. <laughs> so he had, he had this spherical photograph and made a little globe of the moon. So, so Kuiper, he wanted to do it right, and he had a three-foot aluminum globe. It was actually a hemisphere because you only project onto one side. And, and then he collected some of the very, very best photographs of the moon from observatories all over the world. And we had this big 50-foot tunnel set up when I was a graduate student, when I arrived here in Tucson. And so I was put in charge of doing the photography, uh, or worked on that mission with a couple of other people. And we projected these super-duper super good photographs down the 50-foot tunnel onto this white globe. And then once, the, once they're projected, you can walk around to the side. And if our listeners have forgotten, the point of all this is the moon only keeps one side toward the Earth. Right. So we always see the same face. Right. So to see the... the formations or craters or mountains that are along the edge of the moon as we look at from Earth, we can't see them very well. They're very foreshortened. So once we got them on this globe, we could just walk around to the side of the globe, and then we were seeing things that nobody had ever seen before. Right. You know, we were seeing the actual relationships of the features, and wow, this big bullseye, you know, knocked me out, and I went to Kuiper, and to his credit, you know, he agreed to write a paper with me on that. He let me be the, I guess, the first author on the paper. I thought it was just neat that a low-tech method provided such great results. Hope yeah, I it, that was a neat feature of it. That's right. Uh, I know we're running uh, running a little bit over on time, Dr. Hartman. I know you're busy, but I just want to maybe ask a couple final questions about uh, the fact that the Grand Tour illustrates some small asteroids that swing near the Earth. You appear in the in, in the current issue of uh, of the Planetary Report. Uh, there's a question about craters. You answer, answer very nicely. Rusty Schweikert's in the same uh, issue, astronaut, calling for an intervention versus this new asteroid, 2004 MN4, which is maybe the size of the Empire State Building, that's going to come very close to the Earth in 2029. He's calling for an intervention to do something about it. What do you think about it? Should we go out and do something? I think what we do need to do is just slowly and steadily keep working on giving our grandchildren the capability of operating in space. Okay. And that once we get that, we will be able to fly to these things and easily nudge them out of the way because he's right. If you if you go over on the other side of the sun, for example, and intersect it at some distant part of its orbit, you don't have to do very much to keep it from hitting the Earth. You just move it a little bit and then its orbit changes. You know, I think that's the direction we want to go. And um, I guess I'm saying that in opposition to, I mean, I hope this, the space program would not become a big defensive kind of program or, you know, we're going to blow up asteroids or something. But rather, let's develop the capability to go wherever we want with humans, and then we can fly out to these things. And then you get the benefit. You not only can deflect them from the Earth, but you can start looking at resources. And we know there are some pure metal asteroids. We know we've got 24 hours a day of free sunlight in space. 
we may be able to actually process some of these materials in space. Uh, if we concentrate on things like that, I think we get a lot of benefits for the Earth. I'd like to even see NASA get a big mandate to improve the efficiency of the solar panels that we use. You know, most spacecraft have those on there. And if we could just get the efficiency up a little bit, they will become competitive with the ever-increasing uh, price of electricity from uh, fossil fuels. And, and then America could actually go out to the world and say, hey, you know, look what we stand for. We're actually moving away from this petroleum box that everybody's in, and we're starting to develop the uh, alternative sustainable energy. So I think there's some terrific payoffs there. And I guess it'd be fair to say you're, you're a big proponent of, of going uh, a manned space exploration, not just doing it all with, uh, with, with the robots that we Yeah, use. I think we want to do both. I mean, I think we need the balance, and I certainly don't want to cut back on the, on the robotic, but I don't agree with people who are saying, oh, we can learn everything robotically, because yes, that's, that's fine for some scientist's career in the next five years. You know, he can build spacecraft, he or she, and build little black boxes and put them on Mars. But, you know, when you, when you think about what we want to do for the country and the world, I think we really do want to give our grandchildren some capability to operate there. The, the book is The Grand Tour, A Traveler's Guide to the Solar System by Ron Miller and, and our guest today, William K. Hartman. We thank you very much for, for speaking with us. We also want to put, put a plug in for A Traveler's Guide to Mars. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Dr. Hartman, I hope, I hope you'll come on our show again. You bet. Call me up anytime. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right, as we close the segment, I would uh, like to refer you to the web to take a look at where science and art uh, blend, uh, blend seamlessly, courtesy of Professor William K. Hartman. His reconstruction of the 1908 Siberia explosion is fascinating. I'm sure if you Google William K. Hartman and 1908 Siberia, it'll, you'll be able to pull it up. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS. 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned for the always entertaining Sean Mitten to be joining us in our final segment momentarily.